thank you. <laughs> so we saw the Enneagram workshop thing. I am an Enneagram seven, which means I love to have fun. I know that would surprise some of you. But what that means also is that I love clever things. And one of the most clever inventions I think I have ever seen for a grocery store are the carts that have a little car attached to them, right? You know, some of them have, um, it's for kids, and some of them have that red car in front that you have no idea what your kid is doing. I mean, pros and cons, right? Um, and then the other ones have the, the little card the little car up at the top where they can sit in the top and steer. And I always get distracted watching them because they're having so much fun because little kids love to be in control. They love to have power. And so they love driving that car cart around the grocery store until they get old enough to realize that when they're turning right, the cart doesn't always go right. There's a lot of times that it turns left. <laughs> and so you see them a little frustrated going, but I just went this way and the cart is going this way. Have some of y'all ever felt that way? That you're just going along in life and you take a right turn and life just sends you to the left? That is exactly what happens. We have this illusion of control. And looking back at Abraham's life, I see this over and over where Abraham's trucking along and he's taking a turn, he's making a choice, going this way, he'll take a left and God's like, no, 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 let's go right. And so we're going to look at Abraham's life and all of these choices and this journey leading up to where we find him tonight when God calls him for the sacrifice of Isaac. And now I just have to be honest, before we get into this about Abraham, I have a little bit of a hot take on Abraham. I just do not think he's that great. I mean, he obeys great. God credited righteousness to him. But I mean, come on. He is not this phenomenal human. He is just like us. He makes very similar choices to us. And I would actually go so far as to call him a little bit of a self-preserving control freak. Anybody else? Yes. Yes, this is exactly right. This is who he is. So I'm glad none of you are going to find me afterward and complain. Please don't. But there is something that happens in Abraham's story over and over and over. It is that God calls him, then Abraham trusts, then Abraham doesn't trust, and God reminds him. And God calls him, and Abraham trusts, and then Abraham doesn't trust, and then God reminds him over and over and over. And it can be frustrating if we really think Abraham is the main character in this story. But when we step back and realize that the main character in this story is actually God, it all starts to make sense. Because over and over, we see God frustrating Adam, Abraham's very small understanding of who he thinks God is. Over and over, we're, we see God saying, Abraham, that's not who I am. And we are going to talk tonight just about that, about Abraham's life, about how he tries to control and how he understands very little about this mighty God he serves and what this means for us, about this self-preserving self control freak who tries to control 
and what that means for you and me in our walk with the Lord. So to really understand this, we need to go back to Genesis 12 for a moment, okay? Genesis 12 is where God initially initially called Abraham to go. And then in Genesis 22, where we're going to be tonight, this is another time where God called Abraham to go. Now in Genesis 12, God called Abraham to leave his country, his kindred, and his father's house in order to make him a great nation. See, when Abraham was there, though, he was safe. He was secure. He knew exactly what was going on. And so this was a very high calling for Abraham to leave what was known and what was comfortable and what was stable. This was about Abraham leaving his security, about Abraham letting go of his past, the very things that were so known and so much that he depended on. And so now in that invite, God was inviting Abraham not just to a higher calling and faith of letting go of his past, but a deeper understanding of just how trustworthy and good God is. So we have that calling. And then Abraham and Sarah move quickly down to um, Egypt. They are in the Negev. And um, you remember Abraham has this fear that his beautiful wife just might get him in trouble with her beauty, that somehow God does not have the power to control the great lust of the leaders of the country. And so they decide that they are going to lie for his safety, not about Sarah's safety, but for Abraham's safety. They decide to lie because he needs to be safe. And what happens? God says, no, 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 Abraham. That's not who I am. Let's try this again. I will make you into a great nation. So we jump to chapter 15, where God renews his covenant with Abraham and says that he will have a son. And Abraham, Abraham's concerned that God's divine power will not be able to overcome the curses of aging. <laughs> And so what Abraham does is he goes around God's plan and he and Sarah decide that Abraham will have a child with Hagar. And so they conceive a child together and they believe that that is how things are going to work. And what does God say? No, 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 Abraham. That's not who I am. Let's try this again. I will make you into a great nation. And so we arrive into Genesis 22. Isaac has been born. Ishmael has gone away, right? And remember, God promised that he will still make Ishmael a great nation, but he has gone away, and so he is not part of this story anymore. And so now the time has finally arrived. It's just Sarah and Abraham and Isaac, and the time is coming for Isaac to grow into a man and to help make them a great nation. So let's look at chapter 22. Verse 1, sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Sacrifice? Burnt offering? Wouldn't that be difficult for Isaac to grow and prosper if he is a sacrifice and a burnt offering, right? For their family, Ishmael, remember, has gone, so he is not part of this family anymore. The only son is Isaac. Isaac is their only social hope, the only one who can carry on Abraham's name. He's Abraham's future, and this doesn't line up at all. So what does this mean? 
Well, I just gave you the key word. You see, Genesis 12 was about Abraham letting go of his past. And Genesis 22 is about Abraham letting go of his future. His family, his security, everything he knows has passed. And his son, his descendants, his future. Now, in these two passages, there is a Hebrew word. It's lekletcha. It is used only two times in the Old Testament. And it's used in these two passages that are written very similar about go, to, to take up. And so when we see that happening, it is a nod for us to look more closely and examine what's going on in these two situations. What's in common here is that it's time for Abraham to let go of something that he believes is Abraham's and trust God with the thing that is really God's. To this point, God has continued to invite Abraham to see him for who he truly is. And this most recent test that Abraham is experiencing is just a greater test of what he's been um, looking at and learning all along. And it's that question Is anything too hard for the Lord? So let's see what else it has in common with Genesis 12, between 12 and 22. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land. I will show you. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Have you ever wanted God, like when he asks you to obey, you're like, yes, if I can see the end result. And he doesn't show us that. And you say, okay, okay, I'll just take the path to get there. Just show me the path. No? Okay, not the path. All right, God, what about maybe just the direction I should go? Nope. Okay, one step. Yes, okay, we've got one step on which we're going to go because the Lord desires for us to trust him. And so he tells Abraham twice now, I will show you. And so when we look carefully at this passage, we see an invitation for Abraham to trust a good God, to let go of control, to let go of trying to determine the outcome and the circumstances, to trade his very small understanding of who God really is for the greater and truer understanding of the self-revealing God who desires for us to know him, not just a little, but intimately and fully. And so when we get back to this story, before we get into this child sacrifice, I want to take a little sidestep here and just tell you all something very direct, okay? This command to sacrifice Isaac, it's absurd. It's offensive, and we should be offended at it. Looking from the outside in, it even seems to contradict God's character. Doesn't God care about life? And so at this very least, it is at least a contradiction in morality in our understanding. Because we're asking now, is God good? Would he really ask Abraham to sacrifice a child? And so what we need to know about this is two very important things for Abraham that he wasn't near as thrown as we are when Abraham heard this for two reasons. Number one, in these times, child sacrifice was not unheard of. The false gods and the ancient deities were associated very closely with child sacrifice. And if the other gods demanded child sacrifice, then it 
would actually make sense for Yahweh to demand child sacrifice. Because you see, Abraham is still learning who this God is and who God is and what his God is set apart and how his God is different from all of the others. Abraham is still in the process of learning this. And so he probably would not be as deeply disturbed because the other gods of the times did demand this. Now, it is still a very harrowing thought. We can and should be disturbed by this thought. And it was the culture of the time. So that's the first thing. The second thing that will help us here is to know that Abraham knew, like all of the other fathers of the time knew, that the firstborn of the family belongs to God. That is how it works. Exodus 13:1 actually says, the one who opens the womb will be the firstborn and will belong to God. And that was Isaac. Now, while Ishmael was already born to Abraham, Ishmael was born to Hagar, and God has sent them away, and they are part of a new family and a new nation. And Isaac is actually the legitimate son of promise according to the covenant made with Abraham. And so Isaac here, this is why he's referenced as the only son he is the legitimate son of promise. And, but what Abraham knows is that the firstborn son belongs to God. And so for God to ask for an offering of your firstborn was actually expected. And so he is coming at this knowing that it is his duty as a father for the firstborn of his family to belong to God. Now, does that mean it was easy? No. Does that mean it even makes sense? No. It's clear that Abraham obeyed, but don't think for a moment that he was not filled with grief and fear. I mean, let me ask you, if God asked you to hand over the very one you love the most to do with whatever he wanted, would it be easy for you? Would it be easy to take that most valuable thing in your life and trust the circumstances and the outcome of it to God? Of course not. It's hard for us, and it was hard for Abraham. And so here, Abraham and Isaac still continue up the mountain as we go in our story. They are headed up the mountain, and then the scene slows way down. Now, to this point, we have only heard a summary of their actions, kind of what their behavior is and what they're doing. And then the scene slows way down, and we hang on every word that Abraham and Isaac exchange in the only conversation we see them have in Scripture. So let's look at that. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Now, for so long, I've been so annoyed by Abraham in this moment because he has this opportunity to be honest, to help his child grow in faith, and instead he lies to him. <laughs> I have been so angry that he wasn't just honest with Isaac about exactly what was going on. On one hand, on the other, I am a parent. And I kind of get it. I mean, I'm not saying that I have lied to my child, but I may have, you know, nuanced and avoided and done a little bob and weave to avoid some direct questions. But here's the thing. That's not what's happening here. 
my, my hot take of Abraham and his life, it kind of goes out the window here because Abraham wasn't lying to Isaac and he wasn't avoiding the question. He believed it. He believed that God would provide and bring fruition to the promise that he made to Abraham. Look at Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Okay, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. What made him think that? Had he seen someone raised from the dead before? Actually, to Abraham, he had. He had seen someone raised from the dead when Isaac was birthed out of a womb that had been closed. He had seen Isaac come from a place of death to a place of life, that for all intents and purposes, a womb was closed and there was no life in it. So if he had seen God do that, why would he not believe that God could do it again? That in a place where Abraham only saw death, God desired to bring life. And he sees that again. He believed that God would bring life in a place where everyone else only saw death. And so what got Abraham up that mountain? Was it grit? (laughs) Was it radical obedience? Was it complete surrender? It wasn't any of those things, though I can certainly identify with some grit to try and obey. For Abraham, it was faith. Faith that the Lord would provide. The name of the mountain is not on the mountain it will be obeyed. The name of the mountain is on the mount it will be provided. A God who can bring life out of a place where we can only see death. A God who can take circumstances that have no hope tied to them. And he can redeem them in a way that is exceedingly abundant beyond all of our expectations. So my sisters, come in close. If you are in a place today where you see a place of death, or you are in a place that feels like death, don't give up. Are you one of those? I want to tell you, God is not finished. As long as there is breath in our lungs, he is on his throne, and he desires to bring life in a way that we can never anticipate. Y'all got that? Good. So, what is going on here is Abraham, God is still frustrating Abraham's very small understanding of who God is. You know, this isn't just a story of Abraham's faith-fueled obedience, though it's very beautiful. And so we have to keep seeing, we have to keep going to see exactly what God does. You see, Abraham probably had it figured out. We just read in Hebrews 11 that Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead, right? That he had figured out God's plan. He could go up that mountain with confidence and saying, I'm going to obey, I'm going to sacrifice Isaac, and God is going to bring him back to life because he would provide. But what does the Lord do in the 12th hour? He stopped the plan. 
Let's look at the passage. Do not lay a hand on the boy, God said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Here's what happened. Abraham believed that God would bring life, but he didn't expect God to do it in God's way. He expected God to do it in Abraham's way, and God did it in his way. You see, had this been about just blind obedience, God could have called Abraham to just stab Isaac in the tent when he was asleep, but that's not what he did. God brought Abraham up this mountain. He brought him up close. He had him confess to his son, the Lord will provide. He confessed his faith boldly to his son, and yet God is still frustrating Abraham's very small understanding of who God is. And he says, no, 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 Abraham. That's not how we're going to do it. And what does he do? He keeps going. Think about this. Had God allowed Abraham to sacrifice his son, he would have been just like all of the false gods of the pagans. He would have looked just like them. He would have been demanding the same thing that the false gods demanded, using child sacrifice, infanticide, murder, just to test the obedience of his chosen. But God didn't do that because he is not the other gods. God values life, and he will not go against his character. Just about the time that Abraham thinks he has it all figured out who God is, God says, no, 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 that's not who I am. I am who I say I am. Abraham, you do not say who I am. And he brings Abraham up close and says, if you will listen closely and follow me, I will tell you who I am. So who is he, ladies? He is the one who says, I am with you and I will strengthen you. I will give you rest when you are weary and burdened. My grace is sufficient for all that you experience. I will renew your strength. I will fight for you. I will work things for good. My unfailing love will not be shaken. I have given you eternal life. This is the God of Abraham, ladies. This is the God that we worship. And this is the God who desires to bring life into our lives. So knowing this, And knowing that Abraham knew God, why didn't Abraham continue? Why did Abraham continue to take things into his own hands time and again? Friends, why do we? We have the full scriptures of who God is, and still we think that we belong on the throne. We know God is faithful, but we don't always walk like we believe it. Now, I can't speak for you, but I am a self-preserving control freak. (laughs) Absolutely, I am. And so when we look at this, why does this matter for us? What does this mean for us? And I think it's a story about control and about surrender. I mean, to be honest, this... This story of control and surrender, it didn't start with us. It didn't start with Abraham. It actually started in the garden. It started in Genesis 1 and 2. 
when we see Adam and Eve in the garden with God, they have unfettered access to the Father. They have everything they need. They do not lack anything. They have communion, connection, relationship with the Father. They have security. They have certainty. They have everything they need. They lacked nothing until until the serpent came along and tempted them and persuaded them and said, there is a tree over there that you can have more knowledge, more certainty, and it would be the ultimate power move. And in their quest for more certainty, more knowledge, they actually gained the opposite. More unknowns, more distance, more curses, and banished out of the garden. You see, when we look at what was going on in Genesis 1 and 2, we see that we were created for security. We were created for, to, to long for knowledge and certainty. We were created for that, and God was giving that to Adam and Eve. But the crux of the argument is that, that while um, we were created for a Genesis 1 and 2 world, we live in a post-Genesis 3 world. After the fall of man, after the first sin, And so we live in this broken world. And so what that means for us is that instead of surrendering ourselves to the omniscient and omnipotent God, we lean on our own understanding. We lean on our own ways and we exert our control and try to control the circumstances and the outcome every time. We take things into our own hands just like Abraham, just like Adam and Eve, just like Amy Opperly, and we put ourselves on the throne thinking that we belong there. But I will tell you, we are in a very special day and age right now, and we can't just blame our individual selves for this culture issue. We actually live in, for this control issue, I just gave it away. We actually live in a culture of control. And if you think we don't live in a culture of control, let me just see if you relate to any of these things, okay? We order something online and expect, without exception, for it to arrive in two days, sometimes overnight. We want to watch a movie, any movie, and we can stream it on demand. When we want to know what the weather will be in 10 days in another country, we just open our app. When we have a funny cough, we Google and Google until we find a satisfactory answer and let our doctors know that we're dying. (laughs) When we want to stop aging, we buy creams or we pay for surgeries. I mean, y'all, can I get a witness on this? (laughs) At first glance, this list seems a little bit to be like instant gratification. And some of these things are, but not entirely. What this entire list has in common is they grant us the grocery cart steering wheel, the illusion of control. And this is what Sharon Hody Miller in her book, this, The Cost of Control, that has wrecked my world phenomenally in the past two weeks. She says this, in the garden, Satan Satan laid out a game plan for a scam he has been running ever since. The lie that any gap in our knowledge, any boundary on our power, or any limitation on our choice is something to fear, challenge, and resist. It's a deception that Adam and Eve fell for, and we are still falling for it today. Instead of entrusting ourselves to God's goodness, we believe our own control will serve us better. You know, Sharon goes on in this book. She says that there's, in the Bible, there's not really a word for control. There are words like self-control, self-mastery, intemperance. 
But almost all of the times that it references those, it's in reference to God. Why is that? Well, you're exactly right. (laughs) It's because control is a God thing, not a human thing. Control is a God thing, not a human thing. We are all going after omniscience. We are going after all-knowing, omniscience. The more knowledge, the more certainty, the more access, then the more safe we feel. So we're going after omniscience, but we don't have the omnipotence, the power to back it up. We have all of this information, but not the power to do anything with it, actually. Here's an example. Have you ever tried to track a package? (laughs) Did y'all know if you keep refreshing, it doesn't get it there faster? (laughs) You know, thanks to Amazon's, your package is 10 stops away. If I run into a conflict, I can just go find them and go get my package, right? But the thing is, we, we do that, so we have all of this knowledge, but we don't have the omnipotence, the power to back it up. So what's the answer for us? What's the answer for us continually putting ourselves on the throne with knowledge and certainty? Well, we have to go back to the story. The answer for us is in the end of this story You see, the end of the story is, remember, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And that later becomes the Mount of Moriah, where Solomon built his temple. And within Solomon's temple was the Holy of Holies, where they would go in to have access to God. And nearby, on Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified just near the temple... At that moment that Jesus was crucified, the veil in the temple that separated the people from God, that veil torn. And once again, they had unfettered access to the Father. And so the solution for us is in the end of the story. Because on the mount of the Lord it will be provided is the ultimate plan of redemption. That we have full access to this God who is trustworthy and good. And he has all the information and all the power. You see, on the mountain, the Lord provided a sacrifice of a ram for Abraham and preserved Isaac's life. And on the mountain, the Lord provided a sacrifice of his son, so that we might have life. This morning, after um, our teaching this morning, a woman came up to me and she said, God didn't ask Abraham to sacrifice his son, but God was willing to sacrifice his son. This was the ultimate plan of redemption. In the very places where we can only see death, in the very places where we try to control things and bring them back to life, God is frustrating our very small understanding of who we think he is and how he ought to be. And he is bringing life, and he is bringing victory, and he is bringing hope, and he can be trusted with our lives, ladies. Perhaps you might be in a place today where it seems like a lot of death. Maybe where you are grieving the choices of your prodigal child. You're um, battling a chronic illness. 
Maybe you're exhausted from caring for someone else all the time. Maybe you're struggling to reconcile a good God with all of the injustice and oppression and poverty going on in the world. Maybe you are just burdened with this desire to know God and feel like there's just no hope for you. But ladies, that is not true. He desires to bring life to those places. And so in this moment that you're in, what is God trying to show you? How is he shaping your belief of him? What is he inviting you into? You know, this story of Abraham and Isaac is one of the most famous in Abraham's life, if not these, the most famous. And it's one of the high points of ancient literature and ancient narrative. What makes this story so remarkable is not Abraham's obedience and not Abraham's faith, but a God who shows us who he really is, that he is a God who desires life. It's the God who made a way for us to be restored to him, to have access to him, to have relationship with him, and come face to face with him just like we did in the garden. And he crafted this ultimate plan of redemption for you and for me. And so one last question, ladies. How is that grocery cart steering wheel working out for you? I have a little solution, and it's Jesus take the wheel. <laughs> Let's pray. Father God, we thank you just for the access that we have to you, that you are so good and trustworthy. You desire to have relationship with us, the self-preserving control freaks. What a blessing. We aren't worthy of you, God, yet you love us, and you love us so much. And because of who you are, we can trust you, so help us every day to just hand ourselves over to you. It's in the name of your precious son who you gave to us so that we would know you, that we pray all of these things. Amen. Amen.